Hey everyone, before we begin, we have an announcement. Actually, it's less an announcement than it is an appeal. We've put this off as long as possible, but to keep the show going in its current format, we need some support from, as the NPR people say, listeners like you. To that end, we've set up a show page on Patreon, which is a website where podcast hosts and other kinds of creators can solicit a small monthly stipend from people who enjoy what they do and want them to keep doing it. We'll keep this less obtrusive than an NPR pledge drive, but I want to take a minute to explain why we're asking for your help. Sam and I have never been paid to do this podcast. When we started, going on four years and 850 episodes ago, the show was just something we decided to do on top of our actual jobs. And when I left Baseball Prospectus about 350 episodes ago, I decided to keep doing it because I enjoy talking to Sam and directing with all of you, and because I didn't want to be the bad guy who kills a podcast people like, and also probably because I'm bad at business. It takes a lot of hours to do a daily podcast. It's not just the talking, planning, and scheduling, but also the editing, uploading, and posting. All the boring but necessary behind-the-scenes stuff that happens between me calling Sam and you hearing our conversation is a one-man effort, and that man is me. Over the years, our episodes have gotten a lot longer and our audience has gotten a lot larger, which means that our hosting costs are higher and production takes more time. Our Play Index sponsorship no longer comes close to covering those costs, and while the show sounds much better than it did before, that quality has come at cost to my sanity and sleep schedule. Our goal in asking you to support us on Patreon is to make it feasible for us to preserve the podcast in its current form, to keep it free to download so that anyone can access it, and ideally to do both of those things without subjecting you to the same ads for stamps and audiobooks and daily fantasy leagues that you skip past on other podcasts. We know that not everyone has money to spare on a podcast, but we hope that those of you who do have some disposable income will consider devoting some of your entertainment dollars to us. If you're a regular listener, you're getting a lot of hours out of Effectively Wild. This month, for example, we're doing 24 episodes and producing something like 18 hours of audio. As Sam has often observed, we all talk about baseball to avoid dwelling on our impending deaths, which means that we're giving you 18 hours this month during which you're not contemplating your mortality. We hope that's worth something. So please go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash effectivelywild, and become a patron of the show. You can give as little as a couple dollars a month or as much as the complete contents of your bank account. We've also added a few rewards for higher monthly donations in case the satisfaction of having helped sustain the show isn't incentive enough. It's easy to set up a recurring payment, and it's also easy to cancel in case we get the yips and lose our ability to talk about baseball. A percentage of the revenue generated will go to BP, which pays for hosting and gives us this platform, but the majority of the money you contribute will go to me and Sam so that we can keep doing a daily show while earning enough to eat avocados and dinners at diners in the stupidly expensive metropolitan markets where we've both made the dumb decision to live. Thanks for making it possible for the podcast to survive. And now, please enjoy the episode you were actually hoping to hear. Let all the trash rain down From way up in the rafters I'm walking out of here in one piece Don't care what comes after Drive the wedge Torch the bridge Good morning and welcome to episode 839 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented for the first time by our Patreon supporters, many of whom have already generously donated 
and also to the Baseball Reference Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined as always by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Today we are talking about the next team in our team preview series, a team that inspires warm and fuzzy feelings, the champions of the common man, defenders of the secondary ticket market, employers of players with unimpeachable records, the New York Yankees. Later in this episode, George Bissell will be talking to Chad Jennings, who covers the Yankees for Loha.com. But we are talking to the author of the BP Annual Essay and a writer for Sports Illustrated and the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus Bronx, Kenny Ducey. Hey, Kenny. Hey, how's it going? All right. So could the Yankees be any less likable right now? Is there anything they could do from a PR standpoint to be less likable? And I say that as a person who appreciates heels. Generally, I'm in favor of heels, particularly if you're the Yankees and 90% of people are going to hate you anyway. But it seems like maybe they've gotten to the point, at least with their public comments, where even Yankees fans would have a hard time liking the Yankees right now. Can I interrupt real quick sure. before, before Kenny answers that? I, I'm I'm asking for the audience. I'm ask, I'm asking also for myself. What are you What are you talking about besides Chapman? What else? Oh well, are we Yankees, referring to? Because uh, Cashman has gotten like super chill. And yeah, I love been, Cashman. Yeah, it's, uh, more the Lantrost, Randy Levine axis of. What is there? What is there? Uh, I'll let know, Kenny it, explain. Okay, I guess. Sure. No, well, that that's the aspect of the Yankees that people don't really like. But Cashman's been cool. Cashman's hip, hipster Cashman now. Uh, you know, he he look the Chapman deal. I think for that price, like a lot of GMs would have done that. I think sure. that was that was. I mean, you know, the, the you have to weigh the moral aspect of it. But I mean, you know, to get a closer who throws 100 miles an hour on a regular basis for for that return was was pretty great. And I mean, look, they they brought back. Uh, they announced they're bringing back Hope Week this uh, mm-hmm. today. So I, I think that they're, in general, I mean, I, I've, I really think that they have a good PR department. It's just sometimes, uh, you know, their public comments and they can ruffle feathers. And obviously, they don't have a great history of being liked uh, universally. So that, that certainly hinders them. But I'm referring mainly to uh, Lon Trost's, uh, or I guess the entire team's stance against paper tickets and reselling tickets, which is seemingly motivated or at least justified by concern for wealthy fans who might have to sit next to unwealthy fans. Oh, right. The horror of that, as well as Hal Steinbrenner's comments about the Yankees payroll, which uh, he's been saying for years that he wants to get under the luxury tax, which is, you know, understandable. The Yankees paid $26 million in luxury tax fees last year. But I think when the Yankees not exactly cry poor, but say that they want to stop spending so much money, for one thing, they never seem to stick to that. For another thing, no one really cares about the Yankees not being hit with luxury tax fees. So it's just not something that really engenders a whole lot of sympathy for them. Do Do you think there is any legitimacy to that this time around? Obviously, in 2013, they tried to get under that threshold. And then they said, "Eh, you know what, we'll just sign everyone instead. Yeah, I think they're changed men now. I really do. I think that they were they've been hindered by these like they they basically bought themselves the the 09 World Series. And I think everyone knew that. And I think that everyone also knew that, Okay, well, you know, the Yankees might have bought this, but in, you know, four years, they're going to pay for it in five years. And I think they really have. I mean, they committed that money to a couple of years ago to like you were saying, they they said they were going to get under the the threshold. And then they end up getting Ellsbury and McCann and Beltron. But I mean, like this doomsday is here. Like we're in the contract doomsday. 
And, uh, you know, all these are, are going to run off the books. And I think that Cashman's kind of been, he's won enough titles by spending a lot of money on good players. And I think that now he's like in this zone where he wants to, you know, build a defensive team that, uh, you know, plays small ball. And that that's sort of what he's trending towards right now. And he's said it publicly and the moves show it. I mean, they got Aaron Hicks, they got Starlin Castro who has... You know, he can put a glove on his left hand and play okay at second base and, and hits okay and uh, certainly better than Stephen Drew last year, uh, who, was, who was well below 200 for a lot of the season. I, I think that this team is, is finally changing and maybe it's just, you know, Cashman uh, aging a little bit and challenging himself, but also, you know, realizing that, that this is certainly a steep luxury tax to pay year to year. But to the ticket point, just to go back to that for a sec, I do think that that was there was so much public outcry, and I think that the ticket on they have like I guess they want to do you can scan it on your phone now, but like that takes away the ability for people to kind of buy tickets. You know, which is the New York City thing to do. You're just like you know sitting in bed 11 a.m. on a Sunday, like oh boy, I can go to the Yankee game today for ten dollars, and and you can't do that anymore because you can't print your tickets at home, and you're gonna have to go through Ticketmaster now, and I mean, so there's so many complications there. But yeah, I think that. I think that that certainly like had the whole city up in arms for about a week, and I think people have kind of forgotten about it now until it gets to April and people care about baseball again. Yeah, although yesterday I guess there was a NYC FC flare-up where people tried to get into the stadium and they couldn't because they had paper tickets and people were waiting online for a long time and not getting into the stadium. So possibly a preview of what will happen this season at some point. That could be disastrous because I remember when they did the, do you remember when they had the extra uh, x-ray machines installed? And there were, I remember walking outside to check out the lines and like, I mean, they went around the stadium for, for, it was absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was even like, they were testing it one night and it, it, it takes a very long time for people to get in the stadium. So a couple of years in a row now, they've had some, uh, some scandalous uh, moves here that that people have been upset about. Mm -hmm. So when they, uh, when they were trying to get under the luxury tax a couple of years ago, part of the reason was that the longer you're over the tax in consecutive seasons, the higher it goes. It's 50% of whatever they spend over, over the payroll. So if they were to go out and sign, uh, you know, if they'd signed David Freeze a couple of days ago instead of the Pirates, they would have paid 1.5 times as much as the Pirates for David Freeze. And so when we analyze these moves and we talk about, you know, how a win on the market costs, you know, $8 million a win or $10 million a win or $7 million a win or whatever people, whatever rate people are using that year. For the Yankees, it's it's very different. D- does that math come into your head at all? Like when when you see a move that the Yankees make, are you doing the war per dollar math with the Yankees, or is it completely has it just gone to this like level of abstraction where like all you can see are like shapes and smells? Well, I, I think that I think it sort of has because uh, being the young fan that I am, or you know, just growing up with all these Yankees teams, I'm so used to them just spending uh, exorbitant uh, amount of money to get these players, and it almost just seems like in this fairy tale world that is the Bronx, money's not an issue for the Yankees, and um, it never has been. But I mean, it is. It, it's a real issue, and I think that you know, you certainly at, you know look at Jacoby Ellsbury's deal, and you try to come up with some war per dollar equation and try to figure out how much he's worth and and was it worth him to give that money and honestly it was not and he's still got what five years left on that deal or something like that um so you can certainly 
uh, snuff out deals that are probably not in the Yankees' best interest w- uh, when running them through that. But I think it, it, at this point in the Yankees' history and uh, with all that money that they're over, uh, they have to pay on, on luxury tax, like it, it is kind of just shapes and figures at this point uh, to answer your question. Yeah, I, I sort of enjoyed the period where the Yankees just spent past their flaws, like the 2005 team that I think has the worst defense on record for the period that we have advanced defensive stats. The 2005 Yankees had a negative 115 defensive run saved <laughs> and a negative 142 UZR. And yet that team won 95 games. They just didn't pay any attention to prospects for a while. And they were just sort of living off the fumes of the 90s development and then spending and spending and spending to cover up the flaws. And eventually it caught up with them. But as you pointed out in your essay last season, which seemed sort of deflating by the end because they they looked limp and old and flat down the stretch and they sort of rolled over in the wild card game. And it seemed like a a sad ending to the season for Yankees fans and for no one else in the world. But <laughs> in fact, it was sort of a triumph that they even made it that far. And as you pointed out, they were able to lay the groundwork for perhaps the, the next good Yankees team that doesn't cost $250 million. Yeah, it was it was. Look, I mean, it was sort of sad and, you know, no one's going to believe me and no one wants uh, any sympathy uh, or how will have any sympathy towards the Yankees. But when you get the season out of A-Rod and Teixeira, who, you know, broke his leg and who knows what, what the Yankees could have done in that wild card game or going forward if he hadn't, because, uh, you know, he matches up very well against Keuchel with, with their, you know, it, it was just it, it suddenly when Teixeira got hurt. They stopped being able to hit lefties because they didn't have that balance in their order, uh, you know, the switch hitter. And but it was sort of a triumph because A. Rod, you know, had this incredible unforeseen season, and and Mark Teixeira, who was not the friend of uh, batting average, all of a sudden came together and just had a, a remarkable year for really what what he had been doing in the last couple seasons. hadn't even been to say, hadn't even been able to stay healthy. And uh, this was sort of this team that was pieced together and every season the Yankees say, oh, you know, we're going to contend and uh, no one really believed them. And somehow they they pulled one out. And that was despite the fact that Carlos Beltran was sitting in right field, uh, basically single handedly killing their defensive metrics and, uh, you know, turning a lot of singles into doubles. And it's not really his fault. It's A-Rod's fault because uh, Carlos Beltran was supposed to play DH and then A-Rod kind of occupied that role with the way he'd hit. But it was a triumph. I think that the Yankees have a lot to be proud of from last season. And uh, you also develop Greg Bird a little bit as a young player and Luis Severino. And that's kind of the one thing that was cool was usually the Yankees take their time with prospects, which is smart. I mean, you look at how Rick Porcello turned out. They like the Tigers rushed him up. Uh, he was good at the first couple of years of his career, and then it's just kind of been rocky since. And you wonder what would have happened if they left him in there. And there are so many prospects like that who were rushed through the system. The Yankees never do that, but you know, and and to Severino and Bird's credit, they were major league ready. They came up, they performed at a high level, and that was cool to see because you don't usually see twenty year olds. Uh, contributing in big games for the Yankees down the stretch. And here was Luis Severino starting several big games for the Yankees. Um, of, co- of course, not the biggest one of the season, which was wildcard game, but certainly something that they could look back and smile upon. And honestly, I, I really see a similar season uh, taking place this season. And your SI colleague Cliff Corcoran pointed out in his winter report card for the Yankees a month or two ago that Yankees hadn't signed a free agent to a major league contract and that 
if nothing changed, it would be the first offseason since the advent of free agency that the Yankees didn't sign a free agent to a major league contract. I don't believe they have since unless I'm missing someone. Do you think they should have? Is there somewhere where they should have signed a free agent? It was sort of a shallow market, and Pete Cosma doesn't really count. I think it was a minor league deal for him. And mm-hmm. other than that, I'm pretty sure that they, unless I missed something, that they haven't signed a major league player. Mm-hmm. Um, I, look, I mean, there was back and forth of, you know, would Hayward be a decent signing? And I mean, no, it wouldn't have been. But, you know, you have chatter in New York with the Mike Francesas of the world, and you look at these big names, and you, you know, look at lefties who can hit the ball in the ballpark. And, uh, you know, there were certainly enticing names out there, but I don't think there was anything that they really could have could have done to get better in terms of in free agency. Uh, the Starlin Castro trade, I thought, was great. I thought that the Hicks trade uh, was he was just kind of a, a better Chris Young, which was I mean, which was fine for them. They want to focus on defense in their corner outfield spots. And uh, I mean, as much as the Yankees had uh, areas to improve last season, they didn't really have too many holes. Like the, their bullpen was good until injuries happened. And like Jason Shreve fell off a cliff. Brian Mitchell got hit in the face by a line drive. Um, Nova, or, uh, Warren had to go to the rotation. Like all of a sudden their bullpen crumbled, but it really wasn't terrible. And then um, they end up getting Chapman over the offseason. They, they've had a good spring from Shreve, so he should hopefully bounce back for them. And then, you know, you get a defensive corner outfielder who's a little younger than Chris Young. You get a guy who can play second base now. You've essentially filled all your holes the best you can. Uh, there was really no room for a, a big-name free agent. They could use a right-handed power bat, but, look, they have one coming next year in Aaron Judge. When Beltron leaves, he's just going to slide right into right field. So uh, I, I kind of applaud them for not going after a UNS Cespedes or a Jason Hayward to, to you know, get kind of a quick fix. And um, I think it further shows their commitment to their future. So when Chapman is back on the active roster, do you think that they will do anything interesting with those three relievers? Are we in store for something like really unusual and experimental? Or by May, is it going to be, you know, Chapman closing, Miller and Batances each has their inning. Maybe they swap them if there's a bunch of righties coming up. But basically, we're going to have a seventh inning guy, an eighth inning guy, and a ninth inning guy. And it's just going to be as as boring as, well, boring, effective, but as boring as every other, you know, bullpen tries to run. No, I think it's, I think Joe Girardi said this spring that he's going to, he's not going to go with that seventh, eighth, ninth uh, of the kind of that three-man punch. They're going to essentially use that that strength on the back end of the bullpen to rotate Batances and Miller in the eighth inning, and they're going to have Chapman handle the ninth. And I mean, obviously the beautiful thing with that is, you know, you can put any three of those guys in the ninth inning. If Chapman closes three games in a row and, and you need to give him a night off, you can, you got two other guys to handle the eighth and ninth. Uh, but no, I really, I don't think that they're going to do anything experimental, anything too wild. I think in the playoffs, I mean, you'll probably see them go. I mean, who knows with the rotation the way it is, and Ivan Nova is is looking poised right now to almost uh, overtake CC Sabathia for the fifth spot in the rotation. I mean, either one of those guys, you know, if you're starting them, which you hope you don't have to, but if you're starting them in October. Uh, and they give you five innings. I mean, who the hell knows? You could see those three guys handle, you know, the the rest of the game uh, if they really need it. So you're basically describing, though, like you're just describing how the Royals have used their three guys, or like every team that has three good guys uses them, right? Right, exactly. So you you don't think you don't think we're gonna see like, for instance, Batances being used? You know, like one of them is coming in in the fourth inning if it's a six-five game and the bases are loaded, or one of them is going, you know, seven outs at a time, or 
or you know, they're anything anything like that. I don't think so. I, I think that the one thing there to remember with Betances, but it's also uh, dangerous, is that he can. I mean, he, he's young and he was a starter, and he's still not too far removed from being a starter. So they they do like to give him two innings at a time, but it backfired last season because. Again, due to injuries and due to Shreve, uh, just sudden. I mean, he was Shreve was was one of the better relievers in the AL, uh, one of the better stories at least. Uh, Twenty four years old, and then he just decided uh, he completely fell off. So Batances had to work more innings. So by the end of the season, he was gassed. So I think that Joe Girardi's learned from that. And I think that, that he's not really going to do anything. He's not going to overuse these guys. I think he's going to certainly try to keep them fresh. And the other thing to our previous discussion about the youth and moving forward, I think that. Um, they have some younger guys like a James Pazos or uh, like a Jacob Lindgren that they want to kind of mold into maybe a future seventh inning guy, you know, a guy who can give them three outs if they need it uh, in the sixth or, or the seventh. And I think that they're kind of going to be careful. And I don't think that, no, I don't think they'd bring uh, one of those three guys in in the fourth inning, do something, do anything too, uh, too wild. There is usually a point in each of these podcasts where I will ask the guest what they think of some player and it's usually it's a veteran player usually you know an experienced player who maybe had a year that was you know out of line with their career norms or maybe they were coming back from an injury or maybe they used to be really good and now they're not or something like that and I'll say what do you think right and I'm looking at the Yankees and there are arguably 11 but minimum eight guys that I could ask you that so I'm just going to list them all and then you pick the one that you've got the hottest take on okay all right all right I got takes right. so Ellsbury Beltron Castro Teixeira a-Rod, Tanaka, Pineda, Sabathia. Those are those are my my surefire eight. So pick one and say words. All right. You know, I've got a take on Michael Pineda, or I've had takes on him for a while because I've always really liked him. And uh, he, he's never been able to stay healthy. And you talk to writers, uh, you know, just kind of during BP. And everyone's so pessimistic about him because he's been injured so much. But I think this is the season he misses he misses minimal time due to injury. And now he's never really been able to figure it out in terms of putting together a whole season. He's 27. He's theoretically entering the, the you know, the best years of his career. and Best shape of his life. Yes, best shape of his life. Uh, you know, all those good words, spring, rebirth, all that crap, to quote George Costanza. I think that you will see, uh, I mean, look, he needs to have a good season for the Yankees. And I know this is very bold, but I think that he can finally uh, level out this season and and kind of maybe not shine in the first half and disappoint in the second half. Maybe just kind of be okay or, or good even uh, for a full season and and miss. You know, maybe he'll have one DL stint. I, I, I'm I'm optimistic there, but very cautiously. But I think that um, he's a guy who's he has really really good stuff. And I was actually like I was thinking about who should start the wild card game for the Yankees, and he's kind of the biggest boomer bust guy. I mean, you know, look, Evaldi was maybe another option, but he was hurt. But he's a guy who's like, when he's on, he's near unhittable. But the only problem is that he's not really on that much. And he's one of the most inconsistent players that the Yankees have. So I think that's my take for this year. This guy at 27 finally becomes a little more consistent and maybe stays healthy. He had a an odd year too last year. Well, I guess he it wasn't just last year, it was the year before too, but he has this, you know, he had a, a, a big ERA FIP differential last year. And if you, you know, just looked at the strike out to walk ratio, which is, you know, a lot of times the first thing that I might glance at, he, you know, he was like Chris Lee, uh, Cliff Lee, you know, he was just, it was this crazy ratio. And then you sort of look at it a little bit more and the overall performance is kind of like, you know, a sort of a, 
Josh Tomlin, Joe Blanton, Phil Hughes type of thing. And when I think about Michael Pineda, like I do not think of any of those guys like at all. Like he does not strike me as being in any way similar to them. And yet he had, you know, this this great strikeout to walk ratio, gave up a ton of home runs, got hit pretty hard as far as BABIP goes. Do you think that this is a, uh, is this a flaw in his pitching style? Uh, is it a, um, is it an inevitability of his pitching style? Or is it just one of those flukes of BABIP and home run to fly ball percentages? Well, first of all, I kind of threw up a little in my mouth and you said country Joe Blanton, because that's a, you're right. That's a kind of a very, you know, odd way to look at Michael Pineda. But um, I, I think that he just makes a lot of mistakes. Like he's a guy who's who takes risks and, and, you know, has a really nice slider and nice sinking pitches. And I think that like a lot of times it, maybe it's a product of the ballpark. Uh, but, but, you know, he just has a tendency to leave pitches up and uh, gets himself into trouble very easily. And it just seems like it's, it's a lot of gopher balls with him. And I, I'm not really sure if he can control it this season, but I just, I mean, it could just be fatigue really, because I think that that, that tends to happen a lot. Like, when guys get tired over the course of a season, you'll start to leave pitches up, start to leave more, make more mistakes, and that's what happened to Chase and Shreve. You know, his his uh, secondary pitches just weren't there. But I mean, I think he's very aggressive attacking the zone, and I think that that tends to happen. You know, when when you're that style of pitcher, that you know, all of a sudden, you know, a, a game can just really get out of hand, and that's sort of what happens with him. Like he, he'll he'll be in control, and then suddenly everything goes wrong, and that's I mean, that's been the story of his season for a few years. I was sorry to hear about the Bird injury. I liked Bird as a prospect. I enjoyed his debut last year. was looking forward to seeing what he would do this year. Let's assume that he comes back healthy and isn't affected by the shoulder injury long term. What do you think the Yankees lost by losing him for 2016 alone? How many plate appearances do you think he would have gotten? I mean, you got to factor in like an inevitable to share injury because of just how many times this guy's gotten hurt over the past few years. But I mean, I don't I don't think many plate appearances at all. I mean, I think the guy would have probably made 20 starts maybe if to share is hurt. That's it. I mean, I, I don't think they really lost much. I think that they lost a year of his, you know, development further in AAA. But I mean, that was kind of the cautious approach you had to take to this bird mania really last year was like everyone was getting so excited and and he hits balls very far and there's a lot of reasons to get excited but you have to you know remember that that there's really no spot for him the year after and to share his contract will expire and uh, bird will become the yankees new franchise first baseman and uh, so i don't think they really lost too much for this year uh, at all and uh, it, it was sort of sad to hear because he's you know he's a, a good kid and he's obviously a very talented ball player his his OPS was like insane and I mean all the all he did was hit doubles and home runs seemingly last season so you certainly miss a guy like that but then again he probably wasn't going to see the major leagues at all and if anything uh, you know maybe they were even risking having him up in the majors and just having him sit on the bench a lot so um, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really sure if it has too much of an impact for this season. All right. And lastly, you know, usual spring training caveats too soon to say much of anything, but the Yankees do have more injured pitchers or injured players returning probably than the typical team. Is there anything you've seen or heard thus far about any of the guys that are coming back from injuries last year? that has made you encouraged or discouraged or are you reserving judgment on on everyone i really don't like to read too much into uh spring training and make judgments but i mean oh you have all these coming along okay and i mean that's kind of the i think that's the one guy the yankees need to have healthy this season i think that 
he was one of their projects, uh, and the Yankees love these project guys now. And like they took him, he was a, a hard thrower, and they kind of refined his secondary pitches. And, and Larry Rothschild's very good at that. He did it with Brandon McCarthy, uh, kind of unlocking these secondary pitches that these players have. And you know his velocity saw an uptick, and he just became this this almost dominant pitcher. Dare I say, down the stretch last season until he got hurt. Uh, so I think that he's a guy who who is really like a number two, number three for them. Probably a number two because again we just talked about the inconsistency inconsistencies that Michael Pineda has. So I, I think that that's the guy that I'm probably watching the most. Uh, but I really haven't seen too much to kind of throw me um, into jubilation or deep depression about uh, about Ivaldi. Okay, and take us out with a win total prediction. How many games will the Yankees win in 2016? I'm going to say 84. So uh, one win fewer than uh, the Pocota projection and uh, not as quite as many as the Pocota darling Tampa Bay Rays. <laughs> All right. Well, you can find Kenny's writing at Baseball Prospectus Bronx. You can find him at SI and you can find him on Twitter at Kenny Ducey, spelled the same way as Canadian icon Rob Ducey. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, guys. Enjoy the podcast as always. And uh, thanks for having me on. All right. And I also encourage people to check out Sunday's Billions for an extremely strange cameo from Mark Teixeira, as well as a second Brian Doyle reference in five episodes. Billions is really setting a record and extending its own record for Brian Doyle references in network TV. Diane, by the way, Diane Broyle. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He's a, a good, he's a, a good spoonerism. Diane Broyle. You know, I've, I'm really tired of those, but that that one was pretty. That was pretty quality. Thank you. <laughs> All right. After the break, you will hear George talk to Chad Jennings of Lohud.com. Welcome back to Effectively Wild. I'm George Bissell of Baseball Prospectus. Joining me now is Chad Jennings. He covers the New York Yankees for the journal news, lowhud.com. You can follow him on Twitter at lowhudyankees. Chad, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. It's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. I'm in my mid-20s, so I grew up in New England during the days of the evil empire, as Larry Lucchino once famously called those early 2000s Yankee teams. And they were built primarily through astronomical investments on the free agent market. You fast forward to 2016 and the Yankees did not sign a single free agent to a major league contract this offseason. How shocking is that extreme change in organizational philosophy and what's been the reaction to that throughout the game? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty shocking. I, I, you know, they, you know, talked a big game about trying to control payroll. It was kind of one of those, you don't, you're, I'm not going to believe it till I see it. You know, it's not that they didn't take on payroll. I mean, they brought in Chapman, who obviously has a pretty big contract. They took on money in uh, the Starling Castro deal. So they, they, they added some money, but they didn't, uh, uh, to see them pass on, a, especially a deep and strong free agent class, you know, with a lot of guys out there who seem like could, could play a role here and help them out. I mean, this team obviously has a ton of questions in the rotation, and there were plenty of legitimate starters out there, and they, they stayed out of every one of them. It's a, uh, it's pretty stunning. I think it speaks to two things. One, I think it speaks to the amount of investments they've made in the past four or five years. You know, I mean, it's not just the 
Alex Rodriguez contract and all the guys they signed in 09, but you know, go back two years ago in that offseason, you know, when they signed Tanaka and Beltron and McKeon and Elsewhere, I mean, that was, they, they put in almost a half billion dollars of payroll investment that offseason. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of money already on the books. And I think, I think that's obviously a big factor, but also, yeah, I mean, Hal Steinbrenner is trying to run this thing a little bit differently. It's not a total free for all spending spree. I mean, you look at when they did spend so much money through the 2000s, it, it yields them what one championship, you know I mean? That, that, the 2000 title was still kind of a part of that initial dynasty run. And then when they really just started spending wildly on free agency, it, it got them to the playoffs year after year, um, which is certainly something there's something to be said for that, but it, it's only got them one championship. And I think that has changed the way that they're approaching this. And there's clearly a new, a new focus on player development and, and just trying to make smarter additions rather than just kind of beat up the league with, by just outspending everyone. Yeah, that kind of ties directly into my next question, which is what's the long-term plan here? It seems like general manager Brian Cashman, he's placing more of an emphasis on player development now. And considering that the Yankees are still tethered to a ton of huge contracts with that old veteran core, you know, guys like Alex Rodriguez, Mark Teixeira, CeCe Sabathia, those are coming off the books. But you mentioned they still have guys like Ellsbury, uh, McCann, other guys still locked up long-term. What seems to be the plan right now entering 2016 with this franchise long-term? I think that go, the, the winter after 2013, I didn't know. It was hard to tell. You know, mm-hmm. At the time, that's when you know they, they wouldn't invest in Robinson Cano for 10 years, but they would give seven years to Ellsbury and give a huge contract to Tanaka. You know, it seemed like they were kind of there were mixed signals, I think, coming from all different directions. But here in the last two winters, I think you've gotten a good sense of what it is now they're trying to do. There's a clear plan in place. I mean, they're going through and acquiring these young major leaguers who it's kind of a chance to buy low on some guys who once had a ton of prospect stock. I mean, you're looking at, at Didi Gregorius and Aaron Hicks and Nathan Evaldi, Starlin Castro. You know, the past few years, they have clearly tried to build this core of guys who are still young, still have a lot of years of team control, um, still have a, a future where it's not a, it's not a given. It's not a, these guys are not established necessarily, not necessarily a proven big league everyday player, but guys who they see as having still the potential to not only help in the short term, but in the long term. And most of those have really paid off. I mean, they paid off really well for them last year. I mean, look at what Evaldi did in the second half. Look at the way DD Gregorius played in the second half with kind of a gold glove caliber, caliber shortstop who, who showed some improvements on offense. I think that's the new approach. And you see them, too, willing to use the farm system a little bit more, whether it's last year bringing up Slade Heathcott and Mason Williams or Ramon Flores to fill in when Ellsbury was hurt, or if it's at the end of the season where instead of making a trade for David Price, they just bring up Luis Severino. Uh, instead of going for a big bat after Cher was hurt, they just rolled with Greg Bird. I think there is a willingness to use the farm system because I think the farm system has improved, but there is also a new uh, – just a push for it. I mean, they feel like they need that. They need some of these young guys to contribute, and they're maybe more willing to go through uh, some of the, the sort of natural bumps along the way to give a young guy a chance and, and ride that out and trust that it's going to pay off in the year. Definitely want to get to the farm system in just a minute, but of the three acquisitions they made, the major ones uh, via trade this offseason, Araldis Chapman from the Reds, Starlin Castro, who uh, was kind of jettisoned by the Cubs after they just had so many players come up and uh, effectively push him out the door, and then Aaron Hicks, who I think was a, a really savvy pickup 
from the Twins. Uh, which of those do you think has the biggest impact long term? Because obviously Chapman this year maybe has the most immediate impact and is going to grab the most headlines. But which one of those three do you think plays out the best for the Yankees long term? I think it's Castro. I mean, for several reasons, mostly because he's the guy who most clearly has a role to play right now. You know, I mean, Chapman is a, a one-year guy for them. Hicks, I think, like you say, has has the potential for impact. I do think it was a good move, but it's kind of where does he fit long-term? You know, they have Aaron Judge waiting to come up and play right field. They still have Jacoby Ellsbury under contract. They still have Gardner under contract. So even if Hicks does start to play more up to his potential, it's a little bit harder to see where he fits. Castro, I mean, right now they're handing him second base, and, and I think they really believe that he's going to be a guy who can who can hold down that position well into the future. They have Rob Ref Snyder, but they're looking at Ref Snyder more in kind of a backup role, second base, third base kind of utility guy. Whereas Castro just Castro has a role, he has a position, he has a more immediate impact, and I think if he plays well, it's very easy to see how that's going to become a lasting impact well beyond this season. Yeah, the defense has always been the bugaboo with uh, Rob Ref Snyder, <laughs> correct? <laughs> Yeah, it has been. And and I think too just a little bit of trusting him. You know, he he really hasn't been playing pro ball that long. He's it's funny how well known he became. You know, he became kind of this prospect guy that I think got a lot of attention even even without being like, you know, a top 100 guy or anything. He, but for whatever reason, Wes Snyder always kind of got a lot of ink and a lot of uh fans either kind of loved him or hated him. Mm. Um and and yeah, I think right now they're the fact that he's played third base so well down here in spring training, I think he does have a chance to, to have a role. I don't know that he's ever going to be a defensive standout, but I thought when he came up at the end of last season, you know, he played a perfectly fine second base. When you look at the assortment of, of position player prospects that are coming up through the Yankees system, we've touched on a lot of them. Yeah, obviously, Aaron Judge is fascinating because he's a massive human being with tremendous raw power, mm-hmm. but is it fair to say that the guy who maybe has the biggest impact long-term for the Yankees is Jorge Mateo at shortstop? I mean, I think he could be. Um, you know, I look, I mean, all these guys, when a kid's that young, there's a lot of hurdles to overcome. Mm-hmm. And and I think one of the interesting things with him is that they like Didi Gregorius. And, and you know, Didi's pretty young. So you wonder, you know, if he, if he really establishes himself as a, as a strong defender and a guy who can hit enough, how does that impact what they do with Mateo? You know, does he have enough bat to play third base? Can he move to second? But I think, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the upside of Mateo with the speed, with the defense, with some of the early offense he's shown, that upside is significant, but I think Judge, I tend to, I just my own preference in looking at, at young players, looking at prospects, I, I, I always say that I pay a lot more attention to them once they get to Double A, and I just think the fact that Judge is a more polished hitter right now, you know, more sort of on the verge, has has done some things in the upper levels. I think you look at him as certainly a more reliable option. Uh, Mateo is certainly more of the like the, the dream on the upside kind of guy. Yeah. We've talked a lot about the future of the Yankees. Looking at the present 2016 incarnation, uh, one of the guys who is going to have a huge impact on that is Masahiro Tanaka. Last year around this time, everybody assumed he was destined for, for surgery on that elbow. They weren't sure how healthy he was. He ended up making it through the full season, making 24 starts. What's the latest on Tanaka's health, and how has he looked so far this spring in camp? It looks good. I mean, you know, so far it's, but like you say, that's not really the question with him. It's, he's a weird guy to evaluate to me in spring training because you know he's good. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that, that hasn't been a question really since he was, I mean, you knew he was good in Japan. You weren't sure it would translate. Came over here, pitched so well that first half of, of a big league season in New York. Now you know he has the stuff to be a really good big league pitcher. So 
even when he pitches well, it's kind of like, well, what does that mean? You know, I mean, you, you know he's good. It's just kind of how long can that ligament hold out? What are some of these other little things he's had? You know, he had the bone spur in his elbow. He had a forearm issue last year. What do those mean? You know, is that a sign of more things coming? I mean, you know, it just seems like there's this, there's always doom and gloom sort of hanging over him. But when he's pitched, he's pitched pretty well. I mean, he had last year he was not as dominant as he was in the first half of last of 2014. But some of that might have been league adjusting to him, and he now needs to kind of adjust back and uh, and and get kind of back to where he can be a real you know real, a real number one. Um, but no, he looks. I don't know, though, yet what to make of that. You know, I know he's good. Can he hold up and how, how many innings can they get out of this guy? Yeah, when you watch him, are you a little bit concerned? Because it seems like when teams aren't swinging at the splitter, that's when he tends to get hit a little bit harder because the rest of that yeah. arsenal, the, the fastball velocity isn't great. If teams are laying off that splitter, does he sometimes run into a bit more trouble? Because that's the one trend I've noticed when I've watched Tanaka. When, when he has guys chasing that splitter, he's deadly. Yeah, I think so, and I think that may be the adjustment he has to make. You know, he came over, and you knew the split was so good, and and it, it obviously is an effective pitch. And then the big league hitters are good, and and they get to where they can recognize it and, and lay off it. And then he then he has to go to his other pitches, which he has. You know, he has other pitches. He has he has things he can mix in. You know, he can go to the two breaking balls. And I think it may be a matter of he needs to do that. You know, go to his first game down here. It, one strikeout was on a split, one strikeout was on a slider. He, he, he has to be able to better use those other secondary pitches. Because I think you're right, big league hitters, if they end up discovering that it's a sort of a so-so fastball that he can spot, and then the, his go-to strikeout pitch is a the split, they're, they're going to learn to lay off that. And he, that, that may be the way that Tanaka has to adjust back, is, is going back to some of the uh, some of the other breaking balls he has to, to be able to effectively finish off an at-bat. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Who's more likely to take a step forward and become a front of the rotation starter. Nathan Eovaldi uh, or Luis Severino, who was impressive in his debut last year. I, I guess Severino. And I say that mostly because we already have a pretty decent sample size on Evaldi and, uh, you know, to expect that I think he can be better. And I still think he can, I mean, I think there's upside there. I think he's maybe used learning to more effectively use his fastball. The, his own split has obviously gotten better and become more effective. Um, so I think there is more upside there, but it's like, you know, looking at a guy who has a track record already and thinking that all of a sudden is he going to take, you know, maybe two more steps forward and become a real from like a number three, four guy to a number one, two guy. I, I don't know that that's going to happen. And I think the Yankees will be perfectly satisfied if he becomes, if he's a number two guy. I mean, that's pretty good at his age. Um, I think if you're looking for a guy who still has the potential to be a real top of the rotation ace type starter, I, I still think that's probably Severino. I mean, he's, I mean, the guy has, he has velocity, he has changeup, he has breaking ball, he, he, he really has everything. It's, it's asking too much, I think, to say, oh, he's definitely going to be an ace. But a guy who has the potential to be the ace, sure. I mean, that, he's, he's really good. He's pretty polished for as young as he is. Yeah, he's got a lot of moxie, too. A lot of fun to watch. Uh, for my money, which isn't a lot of money, if we're being honest, Joe Girardi. <laughs> Joe Girardi is one of the best managers I can recall at managing a bullpen. What are some of the reasons he's been so successful in that aspect? And is he the perfect manager to pull off this three-headed monster the front office has put in his lap with Aroldis Chapman, Andrew Miller, and Dylan Batances? I think that he, one thing with Joe, I think he's good at, he sets his rules. You know, if a guy has pitched this much, he's not going to pitch again. You know, he, he guys pitch three out of four days. 
he is very good at sticking to his guns and saying, no, I'm not going to use him. I'm going to try to keep him fresh. You know, you look at the, I mean, the workload on Dellen Batances has been significant, but it's also, it's a significant workload that has throughout that workload been very monitored. Mm-hmm. You know, so that you assume that while it's a lot of innings, I guess the hope would be that most of those were not overly high stress innings and most of those were not innings that came when he pitched a whole lot. You know, he never pitched three, four days in a row. He, he stays away from all that stuff. And I think that's helped him. Um, I think that he has gotten good at trusting gradually trusting young pitchers. You know, I think that's one thing that has worked for Joe and has made him a better bullpen manager. You know, two years ago with Patantis, he opened the season. Patantis was kind of the last guy in his pen, and he he gradually moved him along and made him more reliable. Adam Warren went from a mop-up man to a, a trusted kind of can-do-anything reliever. Uh, Chasen Shreve last year, last guy on the roster on opening day, at one point during the season, he was kind of the seventh inning guy when some people were hurt. He, he's gotten good at easing guys into roles, and I think that's been helpful for him. Is he the best manager for this three-headed situation? I My only hesitation with that is that he is still a guy who, in the late innings, likes to be very defined in a, in a pitcher's role. Yeah. You know, this guy's my closer, this guy's my eighth inning guy. And while I think that may work, and I think he puts a lot of stock into the idea of, of pitchers, like to know when they're coming in and it helps them get ready and all that. And, and certainly there's something to be said for it. I would be very curious to see a manager who's willing to throw those rules out completely and use when you have these three guys who are essentially completely interchangeable, you know, to be willing to just say, well, depending on the workload or matchups or whatever, you know, your guy one day Chapman's the closer, the next day he's pitching the, he's the guy getting out of a jam in the sixth inning. You know, I, I, I think it would be very interesting to see a manager willing to use three interchangeable relievers that way. And I don't think that's Joe. I think Joe is more of a guy who's going to put them in their role and, and let them ride that out and stick with it. I'll tell you what, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. I know I'm going to be writing about it a lot. We're probably going to talk about it at some point again later on in the year. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but for you, Chad, what's the most compelling player? And this is the last question I'll get you out of here on. What's the most compelling player or storyline that you're looking forward to covering with this team in 2016? Gosh. Um, down here in spring training, yes, yeah, so much emphasis has been on the bullpen. And, you know, obviously, I mean, Alex is still fascinating. Uh, he just almost can't help it, but to be fascinating, whether some of these older players can stay productive. But I still look at the rotation. I mean, I think that the durability and viability of this rotation is kind of everything for this team. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't do you a lot of good to have three top relievers if you have to use them every day or if you can't give them a lead. I mean, they need their starters to to be good and not just kind of guys who can barely get by and not certainly can't be guys who are hurt all year and you have to dig into upper level pitching depth that really doesn't exist. I think to me, that's a compelling storyline throughout just because it's one that can't be answered down here. It's not like Joe can just declare, you know, which starters are going to stay healthy and which are going to stay productive and all that. I mean, it's, it's going to be something that literally has to play out in front of us as we're watching it. Um, And I think that's fascinating because I think it is, is wildly unpredictable and will, I think it's going to be the, the single most important aspect of the team in determining whether they're good or bad. I completely forgot about A-Rod. I mean, is there one story that you can share <laughs> with us that's that's just the best A-Rod story you have? From this spring? Any or spring. I'll take anything. Ever. ever. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's Alex. I don't know. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, there's just, I don't, I, I, it's funny that there's not necessarily one it's coming to mind. It's just mm-hmm. he can't help himself. You know, I mean, he is 
he is in this at all times. And and I think what's been interesting for me in the last year is since he's come back and in last season, you know, he he's really embraced that sort of idea of a uh, a quiet veteran teacher kind of guy. I mean, he loves that role. I mean, he yeah. comes out and does like a, I mean, he'll do big group interviews just to talk about Starlin Castro, you know, as a, as a guy who used to play shortstop moon to another position. And, and he, he, I remember there was one time very early, I asked him to talk to me about Kevin Long, who's a hitting coach. And most of these guys really, you know, they, they go out of their way to talk about hitting coach because hitting coaches never get any publicity. And, mm-hmm. and, but he just wasn't into it. Wouldn't really have the conversation for whatever reason. And then last year I'm doing a story about Gardner sliding head first and Ellsbury sliding feet first into second base. And why that's, a, and I went to Alex and he was terrific. You know, I mean, like, had all the time in the world to sit here and talk about sliding and, and why you would slide one way or the other and how it's taught and why that affects Ellsbury and why Ellsbury does it this way and why Gardner would do it the other way. You know, it, he, he just has evolved in that way so much where he is a, he's a, it's a different person. I mean, I really, it, it honestly feels like I'm covering now a completely different player than the one that I was covering four or five years ago when I was kind of early on the beat. It's a, it's a kind of a remarkable thing. It seems like he's kind of embraced his mortality and that I don't know how much longer I have left. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to be nice to everybody. It's kind of odd to watch, yeah. but it's been so great got, for everyone. Yeah. I mean, he was humbled in a big way, you know, and I, and I think that is, that I think it genuinely has changed. I don't think that there's a, you know, some of it's probably an act and some of it is him trying to do the right thing, but I do mm-hmm. think that genuinely he's different. I mean, it, it is, it has affected the way it, it legitimately has affected the way that he treats people. It's it's a different he's a different guy. Absolutely, no shortage of storylines in New York as always. Chad, it's a, no, been no. a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Sure thing. Thank you. So that's going to do it for our conversation with Chad Jennings. You can check out his New York Yankees coverage all season long on the Journal News. That's lowhud.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at lowhudyankees. And now we're going to send it back over to Ben Lindbergh to wrap things up. All right, that's it for the Yankees preview. Thank you to Kenny and Chad for coming on. As I mentioned in the open, and by the way, don't worry, we won't be running that regularly after this week. You can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Many of you already have, and we really appreciate it. We hope some more of you will consider it. And come to think of it, I already have some supporters to mention on the podcast. We promise to thank every person who signed up for a plan of $5 a month or more. So I'm just going to do a few of those every day. I'll start with five for today. Apologies if I mispronounce any names. Kelvin Brum was first. Nathan Bodnar. Chris Clarkin. As far as I know, no relation to Yankees pitching prospect Ian Clarkin. Followed by Klaus Vestergaard and Aiden Jackson Evans. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can send us emails at podcast at baseballprospectus.com. We'll be doing a listener email show tomorrow. By the way, if you are one of the upper tier Patreon supporters, you should send us your questions through Patreon so that we will know that it's coming from you. We'll still get it in our email at podcast at baseballprospectus.com. Our book comes out May 3rd. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. You can pre-order it now. It's the story of how Sam and I ran the baseball operations department of the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league team last summer. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes, and you can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Baseball Reference Play Index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP. Again, we appreciate the support on Patreon so far, and thanks to that support, I can say with more confidence than ever that we will be back tomorrow. 
We can be seen in public Oh, we gotta find lonely places to go If they see me walking with you Your friends will cut you dead I've seen it happen, I know You eat caviar Oh, when I eat toast I know I can buy you the things you like most We got a gun and a stand